This is the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan-Nathan and Peter Gowers. Thanks to Ward Keller, the Territory Law Firm. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Territory Story Podcast. My name's Leon Logan-Nathan. With me, my co-host, I wonder what day he's had today, Mr. Peter Gowers. How are you, Pete? Hello there and welcome to another wonderful day of Darwin build-up weather. God, it's uh, it's a bit hard to take, isn't it? What's going on, mate? I don't know, but it's it's the classic build-up. It's the classic. We'll give you a couple of black clouds to lull you into a sense of security that there's going to be a shower or storm, and then we'll just keep floating straight past. And uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, it's it's the time of year for it. October, November is when you expect this disgusting weather. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's hot right now. Yeah, hey, I'm, hot. Just look, I'm looking at the uh, at the weather forecast. It's like 25 to 36 pretty much for the rest of the week mm. with uh, somewhere between a 40 and 70% chance of rain. Mm. I uh, was talking to someone over the weekend who said, oh, yeah, I saw, I saw Darwin on the weather map. It said there's a chance of storms. I said, well, that's true, but... They've only got two slides that they use on the national weather. (laughs) (laughs) It's the chance of a thunderstorm slide for the next six months. (laughs) Right, right. Well, mate, uh, we've got another new guest for the podcast. Uh, Someone I haven't actually met before, so um, we'll be both in the same boat. Let me introduce to you and our listeners, Miss Terry Hart. Terry, welcome to the Territory Story Podcast. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Yeah. Now, uh, as per usual, your um, uh, well, our connection was through LinkedIn. I think I saw you respond to some. I must have written something about the public service uh, from memory, and I think you responded. And then I and then that's how we made that connection, and that sort of link lingered there for a few months. And then uh, and I reached out to you and you kindly agreed to come on the podcast and share your story. Yes. Well, um, maybe yeah, record something before it's lost forever. <laughs> <laughs> what, the public service? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Me. <laughs> My memory. <laughs> oh, don't worry, don't worry. We've had Austin Ash on the podcast and he was 94 not out. Um, and uh, wow. still sharp as a tack. He ran um, rings around both of us. <laughs> yes, oh. he did. Um, so your story, Terry, you uh, are a, a long-time Territorian by the look of it, uh, going back to the 70s or early 80s? Yes, well, I think I think 1978 is a pretty um, important year for both of us, Leon, yes, if right. I remember yes. correctly. Yes. Yeah. So I arrived in, I'm going to give everything away here, be totally um, up front. I arrived in Darwin the day before my 21st birthday in 1978. So that's wow. going okay. back a bit. Well, tell us, yes, well, well tell us uh, where you came from and where you were born, a little bit about your family. Sure. So I was born in Mornable in Western Victoria. So probably the, nearly the most southern point of Australia away from Darwin. Um, eldest of six children. Um, looking back on family life now, it's really quite interesting. Um, my parents, my mother came off the land and were true blue liberals. 
Um, my father came from um, a blue-collar factory uh, background. Um, his father had been asked to stand for Labor in Victoria um, in the 30s, um, but he didn't feel he was clever enough, which is a bit sad, really. Um, yeah, so I had interesting parents who uh, came from different opposing political views, and um, and Dad went to Melbourne and worked in an office for a little while, and then his dad was killed in a motorbike accident. So he was the oldest of a large family, so he came home to Warrnambool to basically support his mother and um, the younger family. So he decided he didn't want to be an office worker anyway and um, ended up working in a caravan park as the manager of what used to be number one caravan park in Warrnambool. So I spent my, um, until I was about 14 in um, Warrnambool growing up and then uh, went to Mount Gambia for five years. So finished my secondary school in there, started my first job there and then decided I didn't want to be in Mount Gambia and I applied for a job uh, I was working with a health fund at the time and I thought I'd need to get out of Mount Gambia. So I'd applied for a very similar job in Hobart. So I handed in my resignation to head office in Adelaide and packed everything that I owned into the back of my car and was booked to hop on the ferry and start this new life in Hobart. And mum and dad arrived to see me off and dad said, oh, by the way, there was a phone call for you, your head office, your old boss wants to talk to you. And I thought, oh, maybe maybe they've overpaid me. <laughs> so <laughs> I went round the corner to the phone box. We didn't have didn't have mobiles in those days, and made the call. And they said, well, we know that you're going to another health fund, so it's not about the work that you're leaving us. Um, we've decided to open up um, two branches in, well, open up in the Northern Territory. And how about going to Darwin and opening up two new branches for us because they didn't have a presence there. And so I thought, oh, can I ring you back? So mm-hmm. I ran back around the corner to my father and said, oh, my God, what do I do? I've got this job in Hobart. I've committed to being made an, this offer of a job in um, Darwin as the manager, opening it up in the Northern Territory. And he just looked at me rather wisely and said, do you want to be warm or do you want to be cold? And I went, <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> so I ran back around the corner to the phone box and uh, rang Hobart and said, I'm not coming, and um, hopped back in my car and drove to Adelaide for two weeks training and then ended up in Darwin. So, yeah, it was a bit of a funny backstory to how I got here. Wow. I didn't quite catch how you went from Warrnambool to Mount Gambia. Oh, my father. Oh, that's another funny story. Um, My father had um, accepted employment uh, running the caravan park next to the Blue Lake. And I I actually remember that journey quite well. It was um, before seatbelts were mandated. Hmm. And... uh, we had six kids in the in the car, and mum and dad were towing a caravan. And friends of theirs were rather cheeky and put just married sign on the back of the caravan, so people would come past, toot, start tooting, and then stop and look because they, 
the station wagon was had six children in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Uh -oh. Right. So um, going from Warrnambool to Mount Gambia, that would have been a big, that's a big trip, isn't it? Because I'm trying to think where exactly is Mount Gambia in South Australia? Oh, look, no, it's so Warrnambool to Portland is about 60 kilometres, I think, about an hour's drive. And then I think Mount Gambia might be another hour further along. I can't remember now. It's a year since I've been there. Yeah. And what's Mount Gambia famous for? The Blue Lake. Oh, okay. Have you been there, Pete? So it's a... <laughs> I've not been to Mount Gambia yet, no. Yeah, so it's got this amazing um, blue lake. It turns blue for several months during the year and it's the most iridescent blue that, you know, you'd ever imagine and it's an old um, uh, volcano crater and it ah. must be, I think from memory, it's the... Uh, um, whatever it is in the soil or the, the um, volcano remains that um, at a certain time of the year it turns blue. Wow. Not blue-green algae? No, not algae. <laughs> <laughs> not algae. Yeah. You know what? You've actually taught me something new today, uh, Terry, because in my mind I had Mount Gambia somewhere halfway between Adelaide and Alice Springs. I don't know why. But it's oh, absolutely not. Oh, no. it's, it's actually on the border almost, isn't it? Mm, yeah, very close to the border. Yeah. That yeah. would have been your big smoke, wouldn't it, Terry, back then for Warrnambool? Yeah. I'm just, I, well, they were both regional centres for yeah. um, dairy farms and sheep farming and Mount Gambia had a, a big forestry industry yeah. there as well in the surrounding areas at the time. Yeah. Mm, okay. And bigger population too, I imagine? Look, I honestly can't remember. Okay. Honestly can't remember. Yeah. And, and it was, it, was there much difference like living in Victoria compared to South Australia? This is not something we normally – Pete's nodding his head vigorously. Like <laughs> South Huge <Australia>. difference. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, looking back um, – uh, Western Victoria was very much, oh, it was a mix of convicts and free settlers. Um, Adelaide, well, you know, Mad Gambia is sort of aligned to Adelaide and they're, they're a different sort of group of people. I think they're very proud of their non-convict background. <laughs> um, the, big, the big difference for me was uh, we were surrounded by Hutton. Felt like hundreds at times, but surrounded by a very, very large extended family on both sides, my mother's side and my father's side, and grew up with cousins. Um, you know, I you know, have lovely memories of um, Christmas parties and birthday parties, and there'd be 30-odd kids and we were all first cousins. You know, it was absolutely amazing. And that was just one side of the family. And we, when we moved to Mount Gambia, there was no family there. And even though in today it's a couple of hours' drive and you, yeah. you could do it easily, but in those days it was a real, um, yeah, it was, that was probably the biggest change is yeah. moving away from that um, close uh, family network. Yeah. The old Falcon 500s didn't handle those old roads quite the same as today's <laughs> modern cars with power steering, air conditioning and 
beautiful, uh, you know, handling on the roads. That's right. And so uh, f- five other siblings, how did they feel about you heading north? Um, look, I just think they took it took it in their stride. Um, the, the oldest three were fairly close in age. The, ne- the next sister along is only 11 months younger than I am and then the one after that is two years and then there was one every two years after that. So... The youngest is um, nine years younger than me, so she was quite young when I left. Um, I mean, and we're obviously we're really close now as adults, but um, for her, probably the two youngest, it was yeah, she's gone. But yeah, mm. I, you know, I, I actually never spoken to them about it, but I don't think they're scarred for life or anything. <laughs> I wonder if number two liked it, uh, stepping up to the top dog position uh, once you'd moved out. Number two is now the eldest child. Oh, well, she didn't take long and she was off too. Oh, right. <laughs> Saw the light. So Mount Gambier wasn't uh, sort of a, a, attracting <laughs> uh, attracting the young people or, or keeping them there at least. Oh, not not in our family. I think at one stage I came up in October '78 to Darwin, and I had within a year, six months to a year, I had two other sisters up here, mm-hmm. um, and both stayed for a number of years. One is still here. Uh, the other sister went back down south after. I think maybe 10, 12 years or something. So, yeah, half of the family were up here and half were um, down south, as we say. Right. So October 78, 43 years in Darwin, uh, if if my maths is correct. Or is it? Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Tell us, tell us, tell us, how did you get to Darwin? Did you drive up? So I drove my car to um, Port Augusta and put it on the train and I came up on the old Garn or Gan, however you say. Oh wow. Um, to Alice Springs. And um, yeah, that was that was a really that was a good journey. And then you drove up the river. Oh actually no. No, you I'm wrong. Yeah, no, no, no. It's um no. So no, that was a later trip that I did when I brought my sister's car up for her. Um, no, the company flew me up. Um, so my car was trucked up and um, I flew up because now, you know, now we're talking about it, I have this vivid memory of getting off the plane and walking across the tarmac to the old airport and just rubbing my fingers together and I could feel the, the humidity in the air. It was, it was shocking, really. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it is, isn't it? When that when that when that plane door opens mm. up and you walk out from the air conditioned plane into the October humidity, there's nothing quite like it, mm. is there? Oh no! And I can remember actually um, the company put us. Uh, there was another girl that came up from Adelaide and with me, and they we were um, accommodated at the old Hotel Darwin for two weeks until we could find accommodation. And I can remember coming home every afternoon and having to have a nanny nap. It was just the heat was just so draining. <laughs> was there much air conditioning? Uh, in, 
in, in the buildings back in 78? Uh, well, the Hotel Darwin, the rooms were. Um, we Our first office was actually in the back of um, a pharmacy in the mall. Oh, just oh, Terry, oh, goodness me, I'm just trying to remember his name, and I should. Oh, his son will probably tell me off when I see him next. Um, anyway, we set up an office in the back of um, the pharmacy in the mall, and then our second office was in... Um, then I think Casarina Square had just been extended for the first time and we had an office um, inside the pharmacy there as well for a while. Mm. But um, my car was at air-conditioned. Uh, when we did find a unit in um, Wood Street and those units are still there, heaven knows what they're like now, um, there was a rattly old air conditioner in the, the bedrooms um, but no air conditioning downstairs. And I actually don't know how we survived. Not only was, um, you know, it was a lack of air conditioning, but being 21 and single and arriving in Darwin in the late 70s, I'm sure I, we went out three or four nights a week, um, generally to beach covers, I think it was, and, um, you know, partied till they kicked us out and then go home and have a sleep and then get up and go to work and then come home and have a nap so you could probably repeat the process over again. Yeah, well. I think that might be the real reason for the nana naps, the late-night activities. Oh, probably. <laughs> <laughs> so you you were basically yeah, at the age of 21. Year. At the age of 21, you were put in charge of the, the, the health um, uh, insurance company. Yeah, when I look back on it, it's pretty remarkable. Um, it was called um, Mutual Community. It's now Bupa. And it, they were well established in um, South Australia. Um, they weren't in any other state. Um, head office was in Adelaide. It was quite a, a conservative, austere type of organisation run by um, a lot of very serious-looking men. <laughs> uh, but obviously they couldn't get anyone to stick their hands up. So <laughs> I thought, oh, here's, here's someone that might go. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I took the bait and came here. Yeah. And, and what was it like being in charge at such a young age? Like did you feel intimidated? Did you feel like you, you were out of your depth? No, I, no, I didn't because... When we first started, there was there was two of us. We came up to open up, and I was the manager. Um, we just knew that we had a job to do. It was all new. Like, we made it our own. It wasn't as if we were replacing somebody or coming into um, a setup that was um, had tried and true ways of doing things. Uh, we had a product to sell. And that, at that time, it was initially um, health insurance and then later on it um, expanded into um, other types of insurance. Uh, so um, I think the, I stayed with the health fund for two and a half years after I arrived in Darwin um, and then it, it expanded quite a bit after I left, but... You know, we had good support from Adelaide. We had good materials and training. So, and there were tried and true processes. So, you couldn't really muck it up. What about um, 
Well, technology was fairly non-existent at the time, but what about that great divide? You know, mail, freight, um, obviously you could make phone calls, but there was no internet, uh, no fax machines. You know, what uh, have you got any stories from, you know, memories of just thinking we are just so isolated here, we've just got to make it work with what we have? <laughs> Not really. I mean, I think because everyone was used to that, um, people would be... People would bring their claims in and we would process them manually and then, um, you know, bag everything up and it would obviously, there'd be a, a QA uh, check once everything got to Adelaide. Um, but, yeah, no, I haven't got anything anything specific. Um, I know that after I left and obviously remained a member of the health fund and um was really quite interested in how it all changed and how technology did change it all. And you can do everything yourself online these mm. days, where before it was very manual. And um, you got to know people. I made some really lovely friends during my first couple of years in Darwin just by meeting people over the counter who came yeah. in with a claim or who wanted to join. You know, and then the next minute you're invited over to their place for dinner and. Uh, yeah, no, so it was just the way Darwin was then too. People were pretty, you know, they were friendly and accommodating and, yeah. And so from there, uh, where did you go to next? Well, I joined the police force. I wanted to challenge. Oh, so, that's a big, that's a big I, change. Um, yeah, I. it was a big change. I before I did that, I took off with a very dear girlfriend. She was the first friend I made in Darwin. Um, her birthday is coming up on the 11th of November and I met her on her 21st birthday and we've been best friends ever since. Uh-huh. And um, so she and I took off to Europe for about six weeks and then um, when we came back, I um, had initially been told I hadn't been accepted and then uh, somebody must have dropped out and they rang me and said, okay, you're you're in the next recruit squad and um, started on the 31st of March, 1980. Gee, interesting times to be uh, in the Northern Territory Police Force, I would have thought. Was that yeah, before well, or after? Because um, Azaria Chamberlain was 1980, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so I think it was... Um, yeah, I was aware of it happening, but I was probably still in recruit right. squad, I think, or very, very early out um, of recruit school because it was a twenty-six. It was a twenty-six week training program for the squad I did. Um, but you know, you go in as a really, you know, looking back as a young young woman with um, coming from a very sheltered background, um, limited real-life experience. Yeah, I look back on it now and go, wow, um, yeah, just wow, you know. But you you go into these things and it's not until afterwards that you look back and reflect. I mean, you just go in and you do any job really, go in (laughs) with a new job and just this is what I really want to do and I like it and you stay or you make some choices and do something else. Hmm. So uh, I do want to touch a little bit on your um, jaunt overseas. It seems like it's a rite of passage for most Australians that hit 21 
they either finish uni or they work for a couple of years and then it's off to Europe. It's off to the, off to the UK, the, the old dart. And uh, what, what drew you to, to, go, to go there? Was it just a love of travel or to find some routes? I mean, what, what was the driving force? Um, pure, pure impulse. I've had it on very impulsive, <laughs> still am. But um, my, um, my girlfriend that I mentioned, she had a, um, a German friend who was living in Darwin at the time and um, she invited Sharon to come and stay with her and her family in um, Germany in a town called Bielefeld. And Sharon contacted me and said, why don't you come? And I went, oh, okay. And then we thought, well, <laughs> why don't we tack some, why don't we tack some um, stuff on to the front end and the back end of the visit, and which we did. And, you know, it was really interesting. I, um, you know, I was spending as much money as I was earning at the time and um, had very little put away. And I had a lay-by on this super-duper sound system from this, uh, I think it was the Pioneer shop that used to be on Stewart Highway. And um, I had paying it off religiously and I think it was about, oh, it might have been about $1,000. It was really expensive for the time. And I went into the guy and I begged him and I said, oh, I've just got this chance to go overseas. <laughs> Is it okay if I, you know, you know, back out of the lay-by, and they were really good about it. So um, I was able to get out of the lay-by, and they gave me my money back uh, that I'd paid. And um, and so we set off on this journey uh, with we had a budget, and we um, everywhere we went, we had the book called A Europe on twenty dollars a day or twenty five dollars a day. Mm. So we just used that as a guide. So we'd look up where we were going. Oh, here's a place that's within our our budget, and we'd book in there. Um, but at the end of the trip, we came back through London, and we, if we didn't spend our daily allowance, we'd put it put it aside. And um, we, with our savings from the trip, we went into Harrods, and um, I think I bought a. Um, rabbit fur jacket and she bought herself a suede coat and we were so proud of ourselves and you know looking back why would you do that when you're coming back to Darwin but anyway it was the thrill of Harrods and you know buying something that we probably never would have and that was your first time overseas yes yes so it was all and very so back in to me. back in the back in the 1980 how how did you get from Darwin to London did you stop like 10 times before you got there or was it a little bit better than that? Um, I think there were two stops. Oh, my, you're really pushing the memory bank here. Um, yeah, I think there were two stops along the way. Uh, yeah, it was a long way. A long way, that's all I remember. It was a long way. And Do you yeah, remember whether you flew there, Qantas? <laughs> do, you remember, do you remember, was it Qantas that flew out of Down? I'm just intrigued. It would, because, have, it would have been. Yeah, right. It would have been Qantas and we flew out of Darwin. And we did fly out of Darwin, um, and whether it was Singapore or a bit further afield, I just don't remember now. Yeah. Right, right. So, the, see, Pete, back in the, those days, you could actually fly Qantas out of Darwin as opposed to Jetstar. I know. A lot of those flights <laughs> to um, 
I used to stop in Bahrain, so that used to oh, yes, stop over yeah, point. that's right. Yes, thank you for the memory jog. Yeah, it was Bahrain. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. And so, um, how did you do you remember what it felt like going over there? Did you, I mean, as in like the weather, the people, how do you yeah, have a memory of that? Would have been just like Adelaide, wouldn't it? <laughs> Look, I have memory of being um, because we bought a Eurail pass and we had a Brit Rail pass, and I remember the um, the Brit Rail pass. We were on a train um, up to Scotland, and I saw snow for the first time in my life, and that was that was amazing, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, we stayed with a. Um, we stayed. We were in Paris, and we. I remember we stayed on the left bank, in this really, really old hotel, um, with um, stairs that uh, circular stairs that went up the side, and obviously toilets were an add-on because the toilets actually jutted out from the wall, so that they'd obviously been added on after several centuries of life, hmm. and. Um, on our on our meagre allowance, we uh, one of our um, things that we did was uh, rush around and find a place, and we bought you know French brie and the breadstick and the mm. real French pate and a bottle of wine, and rushed back to our room, which had a lovely little garden view, and sat there feeling very French. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So a wonderful trip. Uh, did you feel it shaped you in any way? I think it made, yeah, I, I think it made me consciously realise how the places that I'd come from, you know, how small they are as opposed to some of the big cities we visited. But it also made me very grateful to live in Australia and to um, have the opportunities and the lifestyle that we have here that we take for granted. So that was one of my big memories is I loved travelling, but I was so pleased to be home and, and grateful that Australia was home, yeah. Interesting. So you got back here, then joined the police force, um, did your basic training, and then where did you get posted? Um, to Darwin. So I was in um, general duties in Darwin. Um, well, that was Darwin and Casarina from memory. Um, and then 85, 86, so for about 18 months, I was in Catherine in uniform and then came back to Darwin and um, I'd won a position in the criminal investigation branch. And I stayed there for the next uh, probably nine years in CIB. Mm. Uh, then did a stint at the training college. Um, yeah, and left in 94. And your memories of the police force? There's lots of memories, lots of memories. Um, for a large part of the time um, when I was in CIB, I used to say quite flippantly, but I think it was correct, that by virtue of wearing a, a dress, um, you ended up with all the um, sexual assaults, um, uh, child abuse investigations, 
And, you know, I did get an opportunity to work on other big cases, drug cases and murders, but a lot of the time was investigating some pretty dreadful um, assaults against women um, and children and and men um, who'd been um, assaulted. And so, you know, I look back on it now and today um, all police forces have pretty good support systems in place for debriefing um, police officers who have been involved in um, either a traumatic event or, you know, working in this sort of field. It's vicarious trauma really Um, and there wasn't a lot of that available then Mm. Um, and I, yeah, it's, um, it's, it was quite, it was quite easy to fall into a, a, a view that there were only victims and offenders in the world and it was so important for me I think at that time to have um, connections and relationships outside the police because you um, were able to um, engage with people who you know didn't fall in those two categories. Mm. And so when you say you had family connections are you talking about your sister's? Oh, look, no, I think um, connections like my, my girlfriend that I um, mentioned, um, I just, you know, it would it would have been very easy to fall into um, not caring for self. And I think, you know, I my heart goes out these days to police who um, have to deal with some dreadful, dreadful situations and... Um, Self-care is just so important because if you can't, you don't care for your um, emotional well-being as well as your um, physical health, then, you know, you you can't do the job to the best of your ability. You know, I, um, yeah, having seen what I saw over 15, nearly 15 years, it's a really, really tough gig, a really tough gig for Mm. anyone who, who takes it up. But there were good times as well. Things have changed. It wasn't all doom and gloom. <laughs> Do you think things have changed much in terms of the public perception of both police officers and crime in the Territory? This is only my own personal observation, but I think there was more respect for police officers mm. in the 80s. Um, I can tell you a funny story. My husband was also a police officer and... Um, we, well, this is, you know, we. I think we may have left the police force or it was not long before we left the police force and we're in a local pub having a drink and this um, guy walked up to my husband and I could see Dennis sort of um, tense a bit and he sort of stood between me and this guy and I thought, oh, what's going on here? Anyway, it turns out he, um, Dennis had locked him up for, anyway, he came up and said, oh, Mr. Hart, I don't know if you remember me. And Dennis said, yep. (laughs) I just wanted to tell you, 
I said, I just wanted to thank you. He said, I'm now married and I've got kids of my own and you gave me a really good talking to when you locked me up. And he said, some of it must have got through because I've got, a, I'm, you know, I'm out of trouble and I've got a good life. And thank you, Mr. Hart. And shook his hand and we're all going, wow, where did that come from? Yeah. You know, so, <laughs> yeah. So, um you think police, yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I have to agree with you too. I feel like police, I, I don't know where this has gone wrong, but respect for police just seems to have diminished a lot over the last 20-odd years, hasn't it? Mm. And, look, I'm not saying that um, it's a bit like any profession. Um, there's no one profession where um, everyone is perfect 100% of the time. Um, from time to time, there will be people who make the wrong mistake, whether they do it, they make a mistake, whether it's um, deliberately by choice or whether, you know, they make a mistake. It is an honest mistake. Um, but generally, the majority of police are there to do the right thing to protect the community. And yeah, it, it is just a, it's 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 really quite sad that that's happened. But I think it's also happened across the board. It's just not police. Talking to someone the other day, and they and therefore the big difference is is that we've gone from a society which is about we being uh, a community and inclusive to me, very central. Um, it's all about what I want, and it's me, 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 where, and and I thought about it and I thought, yeah, well, that's probably a good way to describe how we've gone from, um, and I'm not saying community's gone, there's really strong communities in Darwin and really, um, but overall society, I think there's been a bit of a shift in the pendulum from the we sense of community and caring and respect and being kind to the, the me and it's all about me and I'm, you know, I don't care if what I want upsets you or upsets other people. So, yeah, I just thought that was probably a really good analogy of where where I think things have shifted a bit. Can I just sort of riff on that for a little bit because you raised that issue at a very timely, um, well, it's very timely given what's going on in Darwin at the moment in terms of the vaccination mandate. And um, we've had a number of discussions on this podcast about that. And uh, it just strikes me that, well, I mean, there's obviously a number of views about this and, and it's no one single view defines a person or defines a particular group. But do you think that, issue about society sort of moving away from the we to the me is part of what is drive, perhaps driving the sentiments about vaccination, about the vaccination mandate. Yeah, and look, I think the vaccination mandate is such a broad spectrum as well. So, mm. you know, I think we have to be careful not to generalise um, and respecting individual views but having said all of that, I keep on thinking back to the two truckies that drove across the border without permits and they were um, infected and their mother 
passed away. Now they they the guilt that they they will carry now um, that for me is what stands out is that I would never want to do anything that could potentially um, harm somebody, whether it was purposely or just you know I will get away with it type of attitude. Um, so you know on that, yeah, it's that, and maybe it was the me me thinking that drove people like that to just to you know throw a band into the wind and and um, take a risk, and that risk you know ended up with them losing someone who you know if they if they knew if they could have if they'd had foresight, they wouldn't have done it. They wouldn't have done it. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm still trying to get my head around it. Uh, I was, I was reading the NT News today, and I saw that they had a whole collage of pictures about the, uh, the, the rally or whatever you want to call it, the protest march on the weekend. And there was one sign that really caught my eye, and it was, "I'm not an anti-vaxer. I'm just an anti-mandate vaxer." Uh, and I, I thought. That is a really interesting nuanced position because <laughs> how, how do you how, how do you fix a situation like that where mm. someone says, oh, "Look, I'm I'm not anti-vax. I just don't want to be forced to do it." And so, what's the answer in that situation, Terry? I don't know. I saw that same sign myself, and I stopped, and I had. Thought about it. I I haven't got an answer. <laughs> I don't think you know. God, that you know that's a really that's a real tough one, a real tough one. And you'd probably need a um, a doctorate in philosophy to even to start to be able to unpack it all. You know, we have a resident one here on the on the podcast. <laughs> resident doctor. <laughs> Doctor <of> philosophy. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, look. Um, okay. So you were there as a police officer for fifteen years, which is a long time, and then you moved into government. Mm. What What so made you decide I'd, to do that? I'd, well, I'd been asked to um, move across to the Department of the Chief Minister in the Office of Women's Affairs on a secondment. Uh, to help them develop the first uh, domestic violence training package for the Northern Territory. And at, towards the end of the six-month uh, secondment, I was then invited to um, apply for uh, the deputy director's position in the Office of Women's Policy. And I, I just thought the timing was right. I was working in a field that... Um, interested me and there were opportunities it was just right it was just the right time for me to leave the police and um and so this opportunity came along I've been blessed with lots of opportunities um and so yeah I went uh, that was my um start in the um in the department of the chief minister back in 94 and you were there for 13 odd years Oh, yeah, it was a fair while because the majority of my time in the public service was with Department of the Chief Minister 
And then I had a stint in the Department of Justice um, and then the latter years um, Department of Trade, what was Trade, Business and Innovation. But the majority of the time was with the um, Department of the Chief Minister. How do you look, when you look back on your time there, what do you feel with the with the biggest ups and the biggest downs? Oh, look, there were, there were so many ups. Um, I got an opportunity to be the official secretary at Government House when Ted Egan was the administrator. Now, mm-hmm. that's a huge up. Mm. Um, Ted, and, Ted and Neris are just amazing couple. Um, and it was a real pleasure to be able to um, be there at Government House at the time they were there. Um, other highlights were probably the change of governments from time to time because they opened doors for me. Um, I can, I'll never forget I was, um, oh, I did go back out to police as a public servant for a while and um, I was asked to, I was running their secretariat in liaison and I was asked to develop the Northern Territory's first crime prevention strategy and Several months later, we just got it all done and signed off and ready to go to Cabinet, and there was an election and a change of government. So that strategy got thrown out, and that's when I, um, the little unit I was in, we were transferred to Department of Justice and were asked by the new, newly elected government to develop the first crime prevention strategy for the Northern Territory, <laughs> which obviously had to look very different from the, the first yes. one. Here's did. something I prepared earlier. It was not an option. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And so, you know, that happened, you know, and I see that as, you know, one door closes and another one opens, and that happened a couple of times through my career. Um, another one was um, Territory 2030, when I was in the Department of the Chief Minister and the government um, appointed a committee of very um, esteemed people, including the current administrator, Vicky O'Halloran, and um, Ted Egan, um, Bill Moss, ex-Macquarie Bank, and quite a few others. And so I was part of a small team that supported them to uh, consult with Territorians and and we developed um, the first, um, basically it was a social strategy for the Northern Territory. And again, there was an election and that went out the window. But then another opportunity came up. So, you know, it's, it's just the way of being in the public service and governments changing and wanting to leave their, make their own mark and um, their policy position. Um, So while some people uh, might think, oh, all that hard work, but um, it also provides opportunities for people and it it develops people's thinking anyway. You know, like you, you've worked on something from a particular angle and then it changes. You've got that knowledge and background with you that you can take into other areas. Yeah. I've got to admit, Terry, as you were speaking then, and you got to the end of the second or third one, my exact thoughts were, 
all that good work wasted. And we hear about government wastage, but I'd never thought of it from that point of view. But at the same time, I'd be interested in your thoughts because obviously that was quite some time ago when that thought process was being looked at and developed. We're still talking about crime prevention to this day and how do we fix this and how do we fix that and Liberal does one thing, Labor does another, everyone in between says it's not working. Have you got some breadcrumbs of, you know, little bits of gold that we should be following or knowing about that, that hasn't been adopted yet? Well, I think the bits of gold aren't, um, and I don't mean any disrespect for any um, political party who are in government, but I think that some of the um, bits of gold are really long-term investments and so they're not bright and shiny when you've got three- or four-year electoral cycles. Um, and that one, there's one really good example is I think it might be in the United States they've been running a longitudinal study of um, at-risk families and they've been tracking the children over, I don't think it might, I'm just making this up now, but it might be 25 years, 30 years or something. And they've been able to um, demonstrate that, you know, early intervention, um, the early childhood nurses, the support for young mothers, the, um, inter, you know, the, the support and wraparounds right through a child's life and formative years actually um, reduces their, um, um, reduces the risk of them engaging with the criminal justice system. But that's gutsy to um, invest um, everything into a 30, say a 30-year plan when Mm. you've got, um, you know, political parties who, you know, by their very nature, they've got a four-year term to demonstrate that their policies do hit the mark and, you know, their their aim is to be re-elected and, you know, how you, how you match that up. Mm. Um, so often, and I know there have been early, interve- funding has gone into early intervention over the years, um, but often it's about, you know, we need, we need political party, we need to demonstrate that we, we can make a change, and so it's often in those short-term responses. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, there's some things that you think should be not left or right. They should be common ground. You know, we talked about some things the other day uh, on the weekend podcast where it would be great if both sides of politics just got together and said, okay, well, for the greater good, we need to do X or we need to do Y, but uh, you're right, with the short election cycles, um, that that's prohibitive. But at the same time, you know, we hear the current government talking about generational change. Well, they're not going to be there in a generation, but I'm sure their counterparts want a similar outcome that they do. So, gee, it'd be good to see both sides working together on these types of things. Yeah, but I think even if both sides miraculously did work together, Pete. Mum and dads out in the suburbs uh, don't have that tolerance or patience 
to to see uh, you know to see to wait something out for thirty years as, as Terry was just talking about and yeah. so if you're going to make those sort of changes first obviously you've got to get bipartisan support which good luck with that mm. and then on top of that you've got to bring the population with you and you've got to create a narrative around that and provide an incentive for why it's worth going back to your your uh, statement before Terry about the the we as opposed to the me. And it's really, really difficult. I mean, you pick up the paper today, for example, and you read, you know, in Alice Springs in a spate of 72 hours, there was, you know, 300-something uh, incidents, criminal incidents. Um, and again, it's, you know, the 13, 14-year-old boys running running amok down there. Uh, how are you going to convince the average resident in Alice Springs that they've got to wait 30 years to see, you know, a change? It's. I think you're in a hiding to nothing there, and so you know we end up with a situation where uh, we we the pendulum sw swings the other way, and you go from uh, uh, the, the bail act reform to well putting kids back in jail, and then you have a four corners program, and then you know it all turns to custard after spending. Mm. Was it sixty or seventy million dollars, maybe more, on a royal commission, which produces answers that we already had from previous uh, yeah. investigations into uh, incarceration? Right. <laughs> You've been there for thirty-seven years, Terry. I mean, you you must feel like uh, Groundhog Day. <laughs> Look, uh, moving on though, you've you spent 37 years in the public service and then you moved into the private sector, into Deloitte of all places. That would have been a, a fairly big move and, and quite a different experience. Yeah, I think that was version one of um, attempting to retire. And um, <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm up to five at the moment. Um, I left the public sector and um, the former managing partner for the Northern Territory, um, he and I had worked on a project when I was still in government and um, when he knew I was leaving, he contacted me and said, oh, how about coming to work for Deloitte? They um, wanted to expand or basically kick off a dedicated public sector advisory team. So I, um, and he was moving um, to Perth, so that's when Karen Green, who I know you um, have spoken to on the podcast, Karen Green took then took over at that time as managing partner. So I worked really closely with Karen and I was there for about, <coughs> excuse me, for about two and a half years. So mainly, um, um working on uh, government tenders and contracts, but started to do some government and not-for-profits. And uh, that, that was supposed to be your retirement, was it? Well, I was, yeah, that was short-lived. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so you were there for about two, two and a half years and then mm. you had an opportunity to move into state by the look of it. Yeah, so... I was um, approached to apply for a job 
um, with the uh, um, Australian Public Service. So there was um, national recruitment going on. So I um, threw my hat in the ring for an expression of interest for a, a 12-month contract. And at the time, um, I was a little, I was unsettled, didn't really know whether I wanted to stay in Darwin or not. And um, our two adult daughters live in Brisbane. So, and my mother uh, lives in Bundaberg. So I thought, well, this would be a great opportunity to test the waters to see whether um, we do want to leave Darwin and move um, to Queensland. And um, with a job, that made it even easier. <laughs> and uh, so I did that um, for a while. And then we decided that we'd come back. <laughs> and that was in May this year. Right. And did you enjoy the time in Brisbane? I did. I was doing a lot of travel to Canberra because that's where the head, um, head office was. We had two offices basically, one in Brisbane City and then one in Canberra. So I did a lot of travel uh, to Canberra, um, worked with a lot of really clever people and, and I enjoyed it. But, um, yeah, I just reached a stage in my life where, again, blessed, um, I don't financially had a good super from the government, so NT government. So I don't have to work. Um, if I do work, it's because I choose to, and I feel I can con contribute, and I'm, you know, getting a buzz out of it. And I woke up one morning <laughs> in Queensland, and I just said to my husband, mm, "I'm having a Marie Kondo moment. This isn't bringing me joy." <laughs> so we had a chat about it, and um, yeah, decided to pack up the dogs and come back to Darwin. Right. Um, and, okay, because this uh, this CV of yours is a little bit interesting because you, you've got uh, some time in Canberra as well, but that might have preceded your time in Brisbane by the look of this. Oh, uh, that was, yeah, I've got, I was, the last few months I was on a task force in Prime Minister and Cabinet Right. Um, but I'm also um, I'm also chair. I sit on the um, Australian Bravery Council, so I spend um, oh, twice a year. I go to Canberra for Bravery Council meetings, and prior to that, for ten years, I was on the Order of Australia Council. So that necessitated um, travel to Canberra at least twice a year. Mm. Right. And then uh, you became self-employed earlier this year. Yes, and this is this is where I get to have fun. <laughs> so um, I've been doing just some little um, side gigs, um, business consulting, business support services. But I also started um, with my sister I, an online health and wellbeing business, which is not going to make millions, but it's lots of fun and um, a little bit of cash on the side, which is good, but um, great products and I get to, it's like being like a kid in a lolly shop really. I have lots <laughs> of fun um, trying out all the products and, um, you know, offering them to, to locals and friends and um, even interstate people who uh, want to try them. Yeah, so it's good. It's fun. Right. And uh, any grandchildren? 
No, we actually started having a family. Um, I was 38 with the first daughter and 42 with the second. So they're early and a mid 20s and early 20s. So, mm. no, a little bit of time left. <laughs> <laughs> no rush. Is that, yeah. No, no. That uh, that generally has a pull on on uh, on, on grandparents. I think well, when they become grandparents, at least uh, you, you hear a lot about people. You know, um, uh, you know, the, t- the territory government wanting to keep seniors in Darwin, and yet uh, there's the, the pull of, of of family down south. Um, and so both your uh, children left Darwin to go to Brisbane. Yeah. So. Um they did their primary school. They uh, came home. Sorry, we, we, I missed the first part. They they did their primary school here, and then primary school in Darwin, and went to boarding school in Brisbane. Ah. And you know that's they made they formed some really strong friendship groups in their secondary years of schooling. And um, yeah, they at this point in their lives, they're not interested in coming back to Darwin. But it's only a three and a half, you know, three hour, 50 minute yeah. plane ride um, yeah. both ways. Um, you know, the same with my mum. Like she's um, 86 and she spent a, a couple of months with us in Brisbane. And um, when I told her we were coming back, I said, I can be in Bundaberg in half a day mm. if I need to be. So the distance is. And the time that it takes to get to family is not what it was when we first came to the Northern Territory. It was it was a huge effort. I remember doing it by Greyhound bus one year. Never again. <laughs> but um, yes, you know, you know, it was yeah, it was an interesting experience. But um, you know, these days with um, flights and um, you can be you can be there so quickly. I was just telling somebody this today, Terry. The antiquated NT government six weeks annual leave, which is just about to be bumped up to six weeks and three days, is a joke because <laughs> I don't need to travel for any more than a day now, and that's if, you know, the connections don't work out. It's probably half a day top. So one day is all they need to travel there and back. We need the two weeks back as a, uh, you know, as a business model. but. Um, you're exactly right. You can get anywhere in the country now in a relatively short space of time. Um, which boarding school did the girls go to? Somerville House. Okay. So I, they call them the green frogs. The girl, <laughs> the, the uniform is, you know, that green. bright apple green. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. nice. Yeah, I think well, secondary school does uh, form where you go, so it makes total sense that they went there and then they, they literally just stayed and never came back. Mm, yeah, yeah. And it was interesting. Um, I think it was just after we got back, I read um, Dr Andrew Taylor's piece. He'd co-written about um, senior Territorians basically mm-hmm. and the increasing number choosing to stay in Darwin. And it really confirmed for me that when we got back, I actually felt just by moving around Darwin and seeing people, um, I just had this sense that there were more um, older Territorians here and had chosen to stay here. And that, and it was nice to see that 
you know, confirmed with Andrew's um, research. And I could not agree with you more, Terry, because when I first came to Darwin, uh, and I think at that stage the average age was 30.9, and I notice that every time now you go to the supermarket or you go out somewhere in public, and there's a lot more people in that 60, 70, 80 bracket that previously you would mm. never have seen before. Yeah. It's great. Definitely. And I think and I think it's um it's a good thing for the territory, you know, it's sort of it's a coming of age. It's um it's growing into its own. It's we're beca- we're starting to look a lot like a lot of other um suburbs or towns or cities or communities um, interstate where you do Mm. have that broad range of age groups and with that comes, um, you know, lots of benefits. Yep. Yep, I agree. Well, Terry, thank you for taking us through your career and your life here. It sounds like uh, you you had a sliding doors moment back in Mount Gambia that could have seen you in Hobart. Uh, you chose the warm weather. You stuck it out. You got married here. Had two kids. Uh, they've flown the coop, but uh, you, you still seem to be firmly entrenched in this place. Oh yes. Apart from, I think your intro talked about, or before we started, you mentioned the disgusting <laughs> weather at the moment. A couple of <laughs> times, I've said to my husband, "Have we?" made the right decision and then we just yeah. crank up the air con and we're fine, we're fine. We'll, <laughs> it'll pass it will pass and then in june july august you wouldn't be anywhere else on earth exactly <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> right well good luck with uh with the um the business i see well you didn't mention it terry you're very polite um you skin is that uh is that um a franchise what what is that exactly so it's originated in the um, in the states um, and has headquarters in Sydney, and it's direct marketing. So there aren't any uh, stores or shops. So it it enables individuals to have a little business. So it it's worked really well for say single mums or people who just want to supplement their income. Um, for me, it's just about it's a great team that I work with and. I get to play in the toy shop, in the Mm -hmm. lolly shop with all the great products and you get to meet really nice people and, you know, they come to you and say, oh, I've got this problem with my skin or that problem and you can actually show them a solution and, you know, you cut out the middleman. So it's it's lots of fun, yeah, And, and I can do it in my own time when I choose it, so that's good. Thanks for joining us, Terry. Thank you very much. That was Terry Hart on the Territory Story podcast. We'll catch you again next time. You've been listening to the Territory Story podcast with Leon Logan Nathan and Peter Gowers. For more episodes, search Territory Story podcast on all leading podcasting platforms or go to territorystory.com. The Territory Story podcast. Thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency.